Hey, good evening. Welcome to Wednesday Night Bible Study, our last Bible study of the year 2020. Uh, Just a housekeeping issue. We will be off next week, but we'll return on January 6th, Wednesday, and we'll be in the uh, Book of Romans. We're going to go line by line, chapter by chapter through Romans, however long it takes us. That's really a meaty. A lot of theology there, a lot of doctrine stuff, a lot of really good things there. And so tonight we're going to do uh, the pastoral epistles. These were written to pastors. Uh, Timothy and Titus were both pastors. Uh, They give insight into church organization, gives insight into what pastors should be teaching, what pastors should be confronting. Uh, There's some organizational stuff in there. So I'm not going to hit everything because some of it actually is a little... uh, crosses over quite a bit, but if you read them on your own, just understand that it's about church organization, it's about encouraging pastors, it's about uh, establishing churches, and how churches should be set up, but also some of the pitfalls in between that, and that's what I'm going to look at tonight, is (coughs) some of the problems that can arise in, uh, in an early church, so let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you again for this time. We thank you for those who are here on the way, those who are listening by podcast. Lord, we thank you by your spirit that you teach us and you guide us, provoke us to thought, question, response, whatever is needed tonight, Lord. And so in this we give you praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, 1 Timothy, written in the year 62-63, Paul is under house arrest. Right in Rome, uh, and the theme is basically it's a leadership manual for church organizations because he's going to be talking about how do you appoint elders or overseers, uh, how do you appoint deacons, and why do you, you know, and things like that. Some structural issues like that, but it's also a personal letter because. Paul knew Timothy from a very young age. He nurtured him along the way. Timothy's a young pastor even at this point. So he has a special affection for Timothy. Uh, you know, he's someone that, that he's guided in, in, in the ministry all these years. So in some of the language here, you know, you get some affectionate language from someone that has you know, known someone um, quite a while and seen them grow. So 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 1 to 8. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Jesus Christ, who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Yeah, my true child in the faith. That's very affectionate. My true child in the faith. This is someone that he nurtured. Grace, mercy, peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Now, he's at the church in Ephesus. He told Timothy, stay on at Ephesus because I want you to instruct uh, certain men not to teach strange doctrines. We'll talk about that in a second. Finish reading this here. 
in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furring the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matter about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So the problem here is confront the false teachers, those that are speaking strange doctrines. Doctrines are beliefs. And uh, uh, again, every gospel, every New Testament epistle speaks out against false teachers. Then, and it plagues the church even today. Uh, so he says, uh, verse 3 again, the middle part, Remain on at Ephesus, so this is where Timothy is at, in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor pay attention to myths, endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal, now this is instruction to the pastor, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Because he says, for some men, strain from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussions. And here's the problem. Wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confidence assertions. This is in the church. So this can be a huge problem, right? And so if we're not careful of who we put in leadership positions if we're not careful about who our teachers are, our pastors are, our elders, our, our, our deacons. Strange doctrine, strange teaching. People could be talking about stuff that they're, they are, have no authority uh, or, or, or the ability to, to explain it. You know, uh, uh, They have no expertise in the particular area. Uh, but yet they get put in those positions. So it's something that has to be uh, uh, looked at and dealt with. Uh, let's see. Thoughts, questions on that? Straightforward. Uh, then he just goes on to say, you know, fight the good fight. You know, keep your chin up, lad, that kind of stuff. He gives them that kind of pep talk. But then in verse 2, chapter 2, Verse 1 to 2. Now remember, he's talking to a pastor about church service, about organization of a church. He says, first of all, I urge that entreaties um, and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. You know, we're supposed to pray for our leaders on a regular basis. And a lot of times if we fall under that trap of separation of church and state, you know, we start thinking, oh, well, we shouldn't be divulging in that or we shouldn't do this or that. No, it says, first of all, I urge that entreaties, in other words, entreaties is, uh, in other words, of saying the needs 
uh, if they have in prayers. Petitions, thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men and for kings and all who are in authority in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So it's the church's responsibility, whether we like who's in charge or not, to pray for who's in charge. Right? And so the hope, hopefully that uh, if someone is not godly or they're not whatever, that, that they would be, or they would be surrounded by people that uh, can influence them. Uh, because the result is leading a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and <coughs> dignity. You know? So that sometimes is a little hard, right? Why do you want to pray for that heathen? I got another but a heathen, heathen. They're just, or that, or that female shouldn't even be in whatever, you know. Uh, pray, you know, because, you know, God's will be done however it would be done uh, for that. And this is in public worship. So, thoughts, questions on that? Mm-hmm. And just the idea, again, separation of church and state. All that means is, from our Constitution, is that the government shall make no laws that prohibit, inhibit, or uh, the the establishment of any religious entity, church. So the government now can't say, you have to do it this way, you got to do it that way, you can't teach this, you can't do that, because that's what was going on in Europe. And in Europe you had church state. In other words, if you were, if you lived in Germany, you were Lutheran, you had no choice. You know, if you lived in Scotland, you were Presbyterian, you had no choice. Lived in England, Church of England, you had no choice. Italy, Roman Catholic, you know, that kind of stuff. So that was the whole thing of coming over here for religious freedom. So that was put into the Constitution. It doesn't mean that the church cannot interact or the church can't pray for leaders or the church people can't get involved or or any of that stuff. That's not what it means. People that are anti-God will try and use that as a way of keeping God out 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 of government, you know. So... That's just the uh, uh, quick version of that. So, then he goes on in chapter 3. About the qualifications for bishops and deacons. Sometimes it uses the word bishop. Sometimes it's translated Presbyterians. Sometimes it's translated uh, overseers. They're all the same. And these are basically, if you're looking at a hierarchy structure in the church, you would have your elders, which are also bishops, can be titled bishops, uh, presbyters, uh, and then you would have deacons. Usually, uh, and then you have the laity down here. So what you would have is you would have people, you know, wanting to move to the position of deacon. Deacon means servant. So these are the people that uh, do a lot of the manual things and a lot of the uh, things that need to be done in the in the church. And then when you move from there, 
you move into this, which is much more theological. You know, uh, in, from elders, bishops, and all of that, you also get your pastors and your teachers. Okay, all on that particular level. This is more theological in nature. Not that this isn't theological. This has this is theological training, but this is more of the hands-on components of stuff. And then you know, here what which I should have here is ministry, which is also serving. So we all serve one form or another. So having said that, this is the qualifications, chapter three, verse one. I cannot read a word of that. I know. <laughs> That's why I said it out loud. Like that, he has That's why I said it out loud. Elders, bishops, <laughs> presbyters, pastors, teachers, deacon servants, laity, uh, ministry. Just want the podcast to know that we're just as lost as you are, fellow listeners. <laughs> this part will be stricken from the podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Diego Delamo. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. In, in other words, if someone wants to move up into this and, and take on those responsibilities, it's, that's a good thing. That's right. Um, an overseer then must be above reproach the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnaciousness, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? So what is the responsibility of, a, of, a, of an overseer? It, to manage the church, right? Take care of the church. And not a new convert. And that's, this is important. Because sometimes in churches, you know, you can put people that are very new to ministry in the absolute wrong position. Because they, they have no understanding of, 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 of how the church structure should be. So, so not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So in other words, you know, you want, as they used to say, you know, a stand-up guy, you know, a good person, good repute, you know, there's, there's a, we're not talking perfect individuals here. We're talking about someone that uh, strives to do good. Someone that has good intentions. You know, a lot of this sometimes gets picked apart. And, you know, I said, well, you can't because of this and you can't because a lot of it is, is um, you know, needless, needless discussion. But people do want to pick this apart from time to time. So are there any questions on that? If you want to pick any of that apart or is there a question in there? About something we can we can deal with that. Okay, then it goes on to deacons, verse eight. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let these also first be tested, 
then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified. Now notice, under the qualifications of a deacon, a woman is brought in here. There are deaconesses in, biblically, there are deaconesses in the book of Acts. Because what are they doing? They're serving. They're doing things within the, in the church. But it, it is a taking on more of an authoritative level. Women likewise must be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households for those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So it's kind of like parallel things, you know, here. It's, it's, it's just, you know... You want people that are striving to do good, striving to do well. People that don't uh, 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 aren't out for themselves, aren't uh, you know, sordid gain sort of thing. Or people that aren't looking for status or position or or anything like that. Because all of us are a work in progress. From the point of <coughs> repentance and coming into the kingdom of God, we're all a work in progress. So you know, and usually this is this is the path the one normally takes. You know, you laity, you, then you start serving somewhere, you start doing something uh, in the church, and then at some point, uh, if, if required, and if the church requires the official office of a, of a deacon, then you can move into that with an ordination <coughs> as a deacon. And then from there, you can move into, into the realm here of, of elders and overseers and you know, elders and bishops and overseers and all this, this is part of your administrative staff and, and different things like that, but it is a higher level of uh, authority within the church. Okay. So. I did have a couple questions. Sure. So what was considered a new convert, <clears throat> or what would get you away from being a new convert? Was a new convert, well, the new convert was someone that has not been discipled, number one. So whatever, however long this happening took. Yeah, and so, again, we're talking about a new church at this point. It's about 30 years old, 35 years old. So, you know, they're having to work these things out. But the idea here is that, you know, like like the uh, uh, the Great Commission says, you know, to get them saved and make disciples of them. So the idea is if we have disciples, now they know, uh, they have a better idea of church structure. Their faith is stronger. Uh, they've they've uh, weathered some storms. You know, you don't want to put anybody in a position that has never weathered any storms, because there's going to be storms. You know, spiritually, whatever. So yeah, a new convert. It's there, there's no time limit on it, but it's also at that point where that person now recognizes that they need to step up. And then when did that? So I noticed like, they talk about deacons. When the whole senior associate pastor came into being, and I noticed, like, obviously now there's more, I guess you could say it's been more positions, if you will. That's, that's more um, <clears throat> denominational administration. Yeah, I was going to say, is that more con, uh, contemporary? Like, yeah, Is it even biblical, though? Is that, is that biblical? or? Well, it's biblical under this, in the fact that, for example... If Paul was preaching at the church, and if Paul was at Ephesus, and Timothy was at Ephesus, who would be the senior pastor? But they didn't, I mean, Paul wouldn't. I know, but he wouldn't. But when he does make his case in 2 Corinthians, when they challenge his authority, 
he now says, okay, this is who I am, this is what I've done, this is why I have this position. Because they challenge his apostleship. You know, he said, well, who are you? Because we saw you doing this, and we heard about this, and that, yada, yada. But he says, yeah, I went through this, I was shipwrecked, I, I went through that, I did this, you know, and, and all that. So he, he kind of goes through his resume to say, this is why I am, because he was basically making the case without fully stating it, saying that even though you have the 12, my position today is above the 12, because he says, I, they, were, they were called, but I was called on the road to Damascus by the resurrected ascended seated at the right hand of God, Jesus, who called me out from that, and that's now where I get my authority to do this. So he, he doesn't want to do this, he never wants to do that, but in response to the problems that were going on in that church and the questions that they were having, he had to, to respond. And that's basically, that's the back part of Second uh, Corinthians. Where he, he goes through that. So yeah, and again, there's, not all churches are set up quite this way, but they will have the idea of it. Uh, um, this is basically what they call Presbyterian. Not Presbyterian <clears throat> as a Presbyterian denomination, uh, but it's the idea of the presbyter, which is from bishop is translated uh, from from that word presbyter out of there. So is elder taken out of that, and overseer is taken out of that. That you have the elders, and then you have deacons, and then you have the laity there, uh, and then you have Episcopalian, which is like the Catholic Church. You have the su supreme guy at the top who now orders downward, and then he has his, his cardinals, and then below the cardinals you have the bishops, and then you have the monsignors, and then you have the, but you have that one person at the top. This is not necessarily one person at the top. This, is, this allows more for a, uh, an organizational structure, whereas, whereas Episcopalian is one person at the, pot, at the top, ruling and saying this is the way it's going to be. Let's call it Episcopalian. Not necessarily from Episcopalian church, but it's Episcopalian. And then there was another form in the early church in this country, early in this country, uh, before we became the United States, and I forget the actual term for it, but Quakers... And then there was another group actually called Shakers. Mm -hmm. There was the Quakers, Shakers, Mennonites, and another group, I forget who they are, and I forget the name for this type of leadership, is where everybody was the same. There was no formal leader. And you would come into the room, everybody would be quiet, and you would just sit there and meditate until someone felt the unction of God, and they would get up and they would read a scripture or they would say something, and then they would sit down and then the rest would now discuss it or follow it. But at any given meeting, any one person could do that. Uh, it works good on a certain level, but it doesn't work good from a leadership format because you don't have a leader. It works, it works better in the idea of, say, prayer meetings and that kind of stuff, but it doesn't work good in the term of organization of a, a church structure because you don't have someone who, ha who has the final say. You know, the buck stops here. So. 
Any other questions? Is that good? Is that perfect? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, chapter four, verse eleven. Actually, you know what? Chapter 4, verse 1. I just want to read this part. But the Spirit explicitly says, in the later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits, doctrines, demons, by means of hypocrisy of liars, sheared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from food which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by the means of the word of God and prayer. Keep that in mind and now go to verse 11. He says, Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness. This is personal to Tim- Timothy. But rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed upon you through prophetic utterance of the laying on of hands by the presbytery, meaning the overseers. Take pains with these, uh, be absorbed in them so that your progress may be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Preserve, persevere in these things for you, for as you do this you ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. You know, he's talking about the public reading, you know, of of scripture. We're going to get a little bit more into this in a second. That, you know, what do we do every Sunday? What are we doing on Wednesdays when we come together? It's a public reading of scripture. And so we need to uh, make sure we're handling the word of God as best we can in the correct manner. And so, you know, he just tells them, you know, prescribe, teach these things. And don't let anybody look down on you because you're a young guy. Uh, conduct yourself in love and conduct yourself in the right way uh, and give attention to the public reading of scripture and exhortation which is encouragement and to teaching you know uh, one of the things that, that gets f- forgotten a lot of times in, in, in church is yeah preaching but let's not forget the teaching because it's the teaching that takes us in, now into the realm of discipleship Preaching a lot of times will get us saved. A lot of times preaching is more exhortation. Uh, but it's that teaching that now takes us, does the theology. Who is God? What is God doing? Where am I in relationship to God? Or where should I be in relationship to what God is saying in, in, in the scripture? So teaching is very, very um, important. So here the idea that pastors should be teachers. right? Because that's part of the part of their job. And so, you know, this is a pastoral thing, but it's also for all of us to know so that we should know what to expect in a pastor or what we should uh, require of a pastor, what should be required of our elders, you know, because ultimately, who would be the ones that would be voting on us? Who would be the ones that would bring in a new pastor? 
who are the ones that will be, you know, judging, you know, the elders and the deacons and, and how they're doing things. It's 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 the laity, it's the church, who are are, are, are believing uh, members. Okay. Chapter five is basically goes on about how to treat people, whether they're young, they're old. You know, it's just, it's just it's just common sense. It's just good things. But the idea is here is that. You know, I've heard and I've been around some pastors that can be very domineering. Very, uh, it's my way or the highway. It's very, uh, they can be very um, judgmental. They can be very not listening, not whatever. And it's, you know, you you, you, you still have to do all things in love. You still have to, you know, treat people the right way. Be kind to all. So that's what chapter 5 basically is about. And then, uh, chapter 6, verse 20 and 21, it says, O Timothy, that's an affectionate term, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted in you, avoid the worldly and empty chatter, and the opposite's opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. This is gnosis. This is part of uh, uh, what the world would bring into the church. This is philosophy. So he's saying, you know, the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. So in other words, he says, be aware of the prevailing thought that's going on outside of the church. And the prevailing thought outside of the church was this uh, philosophy, gnosis, knowledge. Men can figure who God is. Is God can do it, Men can do it just as good as God, kind of thing. And he said, some have fallen into that, avoid it. They've been led astray by it. And that's his closing words to Timothy on this. Yeah. When he says in First Timothy one, it says, which comes out, which some have professed, and thus gone astray. So. Mm-hmm. Professed, does that mean that these people were openly, at this point, they were openly rebellion to biblical teaching? Inside the church, yeah. Was well, it gone astray? So does that mean uh, left the church? Yeah. They've gone astray. Well, not so much left the church, but they've left the teaching. And they're, 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 they're adhering more to other stuff, so they've gone astray. And so, you know, there's other passages in here where it talks about, you know, uh, if your brother's gone astray, sit him down, talk to him. And if he and if he hears you, you've won your brother. This is Jesus talking. And then he says, if he still doesn't hear you, bring him to two or three. And if he still doesn't, bring him to the whole assembly. You know, there's 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 that process in that as well. Although I'm sure there were probably some that just said, "I'll forget it. I'm not doing anything with this anymore. I'm I'm going back." So they they just totally gone astray. But there could be people inside the church who are, are, are teaching different things. And uh, they've gone astray. Because again, Paul's letter to the Galatians, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? How, how did you get saved? By works or by faith? They, they had gone astray. So that's, that's what he's, he's dealing with there. So basically, you know, guard what's been entrusted to you. And so as pastors, it's, it's you know, guard scripture, guard what... That's why... Um, 
I've been here since January of 11. And outside of myself, there have only been two other people in the pulpit. Because I don't trust. And I just won't turn it over to anyone. And so if I have a vacation scheduled or something and Pastor G is not available, um, I'll, I'll work around and do whatever, change it. Uh, one time I had uh, a pastor friend of mine come and teach about uh, the underground church in Romania. I, I trust him. And I encourage you to be here the second week in January because someone new was going to be in the pulpit that I certainly trust. So, um, thoughts, questions on First Timothy? Then turn your page over and go to Titus. Now notice it, it says Second Timothy and then it, then it goes to, to Titus. It's not put together in chronological order. Titus. Um, written in 63, the theme is conduct manual for church living, but he also addresses again the issue of false teaching. Okay. Also, and I'm going to say this, not necessarily that I believe that it's true, but there's some school of thought out there among some professors and people that teach the book of Acts that Paul was released from house arrest for a little while. And then he was sent back into house arrest. Scripture doesn't tell us that. They use kind of outside evidence for that and they kind of make up this I don't know they make it up, but but they say there's there's evidence that says he might have been out for a little while, but then he went back in, and they will say that he wrote Titus while he, he took a trip to Macedonia, and then from Macedonia they put him back in jail. I don't have scripture that says that, but I'm just saying that to you in case you ever hear that. That's where that comes out. Some, some tend to think that. Me, personally, the book of Steve, I think he was in jail the whole time. And the reason I think that is because Scripture doesn't tell us he wasn't taken out. And the other is that Nero was the emperor. And I just can't see Nero, who was just horrible, saying, yeah, okay, you can go and, and then bring him back. No, it's Nero that had him killed. So I, I just, I don't see it. But again, I'll allow for for that. He wants to go there. So just so you know. So Titus chapter 1, verse 1 to 5. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, and the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, that's, that's a theological statement there, it's a doctrine statement about God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. But at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true child. Here's another one. He raised him. He, 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 you know, he cut his theological chops under, under Paul's teaching. A, a common, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. So again, it's going to be a personal letter to someone he knew, someone he nurtured, someone he wants to make sure that they do the right thing, and who's over a church, and, and he's going to be, 
he's over a church in, in Colosseum, which is, uh, uh, um, I didn't put the map up, but it's uh, in, in uh, southern Asia, uh, which would be the uh, lower part of Turkey today. Uh, let's see. Verse 10. Here's the problem. Verse 10, chapter 1. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. So in other words, Jewish believers. When it says those of the circumcision, right there, you know they're Jewish. And when it's in regards to the church, now you know they have converted. So who are these people? For they are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Now remember when he said, what, what's, what's one of the requirements? It says both their mind and their conscience is defiled. They profess to know God, but their deeds deny him. In other words, they say they know God, but their actions are contrary. And so, you know, one of the markers in the church is we have to look at what people do, not just what they say, right? What you say has to line up with what you do. And what we do has to line up with Scripture. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1. And then he says to Titus, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Sound doctrine, sound belief. You know, this is from uh, Sunday school, children's Sunday school. The Bible's made up of 66 books in, you know, in establishing the biblical canon. Canon means standard. And standard means that which is, like it's the plumb line. It's that which you achieve. It's that which you do not move away from. It's that which guides us. And so the biblical canon, when you're teaching a sound doctrine, it comes from Scripture, which is the biblical canon, which is the biblical standard of God. That's what canon means. That's what the Bible is. Bible just means book. But when we're talking about 66 books, it's the biblical canon. It's the biblical standard of God. This is where we find out who God is, what God is doing, and then, well, we should respond to what God is doing. And so we teach a sound doctrine if we're on the pages of the Bible. If we come off the pages of the Bible, it's not a sound doctrine anymore, right? I wonder, uh, well, the, the, I know the Catholic Bible is very different than our Bible. It's, they have apocrypha books. Yeah, the only part that what's different is the Apocrypha, which is in the middle section. Yeah. And that came about in the Council of... I'll write this so Diego can read it. <laughs> Council of Trent in the year... It actually started in the year 1545, but it went on to about the year 1579. Well, this is a Council of Trent, and when it was put together, it was by uh, the Pope called this council together, and what it was was that prior to this, in the uh, 1520s, you had Martin Luther, 
you have the Reformation, and this is where now the Protestants, or those that had a problem with what the church in Rome was doing, didn't necessarily split off. They basically said, we need, we need to get back to sound doctrine. We need to stop all these indulgences and all these other things. Mm-hmm. We need to we need to stay here. So what so what the Reformation was about is what we're talking about here, teaching the sound doctrine, doing the right thing, believing the right thing, and confessing that. And so, what happened was they were using the same Bible. Up until this point, the Roman Catholic Church only wanted the Bibles printed in in Latin. Mm-hmm. Because that was the language of higher education. The common person didn't have it. So therefore, you had to go to a Catholic church or a priest to get biblical knowledge because you couldn't read it for yourself. You had you had to come to them. So what Luther did, one of the first things he did, he, he, translated, he translated the New Testament in, into German. And that started that whole thing of now translating the Bible into the into the vernacular, into the language of, of whatever land, uh, whatever language the people were were using. But going back to the Council of Trent in 1545, this is where the Roman Catholic Church actually started. Up until that point, it was not called Roman Catholic Church. It was just Catholic Church. It was universal. But because of now the split, and now you had all these different groups that were starting away from Rome... Rome now felt they had to define themselves against those Reformation churches. They were smart enough to know they couldn't do away with the standard scriptures. So what they did was they added the Apocrypha. So that's the, the difference. Mm-hmm. And they, they put that, that stuff in there, uh, which is not looked upon as... as It's not looked upon as canonical, meaning inspired by God, but a lot of those things are good historical. For example, Maccabees. It tells us the story of the revolt of the Maccabees right before the time of Christ. You know, Syria came in and they ransacked the temple and the Maccabees revolt and and some other things. And uh, there's actually one scripture in there. I think it's in Tobit. Um, I think it's Tobit, where, and I forget the exact language, but Christopher Columbus, when he went to Queen Isabella and he wanted money to sail and to prove that the earth was round, he used a line in, I think it's, it's Tobit, where it talks about the circumference of the world. And he used that to persuade her. Uh, you know, in there, so those things are already around because Tobit was written before this. They had it, but it was never looked upon as "thus saith God." It was looked upon as it's a good writing, it's a good teaching, it's this and that. And so the Catholic Church had always kind of had those things. So the Council of Trent, that was one of the things they did. It now became Roman Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And now the Apocrypha was added. But the New Testament and Old Testament is, is exactly the same. Okay. So it's middle books. So, um, so yeah. Uh, any other thoughts on that? Nope. Let's see. Chapter 3, verse 1. 
But chapter 2 is just basically talking about speak a sound doctrine, right? And then chapter 3 says, remind them to be subject to rulers. Remember we read earlier, we're to pray for rulers. Subject to rulers, to authorities, to be, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. So in other words, the church has to be ready to do good deeds. It doesn't mean we shut off and stop being the church, even though we don't like what's going on. There's always an opportunity to do some good, right? To take the opportunity for every good deed. Verse 2, it says, malign no one. To be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts, pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, which you have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing, regeneration, renewing, by the Holy Spirit. Doctrine statement there, right? Verse 6. Whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, doctrine statement, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. And then he says, But shun foolish controversies, genealogies, strife, disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factitious man after a first and second warning. That's like a... uh, someone that is uh, overly religious or legalistic. Verse 11, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. He says, do good things, but preach the gospel. Right? In the middle of all that, he said, this is what the gospel is. This is what you have to preach. This is what we're about. But out of that, we should be doing good deeds when the opportunity arises. So that's why the church uh, has always usually been in the forefront of when there's a disaster or something going on that the church was was there uh, helping people. Over the years, I think the church has kind of slid away and let the government take on that role more and more. Whereas I think the church should be more prominent in doing that because if there's a catastrophe or something going on and the church is supplying the needs of the people... Uh, then people will be more apt to respond to the church, but at the same time, there's the opportunity for the gospel. So that's like, you know, you go uh, someplace where they're giving meals to the homeless, well, you hear the gospel first, then you get the meal. So that's that. It's basically, uh, you know, good deeds stem from a sound doctrine. The sound doctrine comes from Scripture. Make sure you're on the pages of the Bible preach the gospel, do good things, treat people fairly, but when someone's teaching a false doctrine, go after it, nip it in the bud. Don't let it exist. You know. Thoughts, questions on Titus? Kind of parallels 1 Timothy? 2 Timothy. Go back a couple pages. I can do this. 
2 Timothy, written in 67 AD, and it's basically the theme is endurance in pastoral ministry. He's saying, is it a pastor? You're going to have to endure. You're going to, have to go, you're going to go through some stuff. You're going to have to endure. And uh, uh, that's the church as a whole. The church is going to have to endure. And how is the church going to endure if the pastor is not willing to endure, if the leadership is not willing to endure? Right? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. He says, and for this reason, the first part was his, his basically his thanksgiving for Timothy and Timothy's faith. And then verse 6, he says, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. This is basically kind of an ordination thing. This is where that, that comes from. Uh, for God has not given us no... We can hear a couple of scriptures right through here that we've heard a lot, but notice the context. Verse 7, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power, love, and discipline. So he's saying to the pastor, don't be timid. Right? God, uh, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power, love, and discipline. So the church should be disciplined as well as the leaders should be disciplined, right? There should be a discipline going on there. Because if you're following scripture, you know, they you know, the study of something used to be called what? Discipline. You're, you're, you're discipled by it. There's there's a discipline behind it. It's like if you're a doctor, they have certain this is the disciplines of being a doctor. You know, it's like I, I asked a I asked a, uh, a Rotarian guy who was a, who was a doctor and he was working in ER, and I asked him how do you, when someone comes in with with a trauma, I said how do you assess what's going on because they're coming in with all kinds of different things, and he said well we have a list, and it starts with one you check for this then you check this then you check this and you do, you don't miss any of those steps. And you check those things all the way down and you go through all of those things and those things will now tell you what's going on with, with the patient. But it's a discipline. If you vary from that, you could miss it. And so I said, well, okay, it makes sense. So, uh, so this is a pastoral responsibility, a pastor's responsibility. Verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Suffering for the power of gospel. In other words, you're going to have to endure. You're going to go through stuff. I'm in jail here. You know, you're going through your trials. There's, there's always going to be something, but, you know, power of God is there for us. Uh, verse 9, who has saved us, called us, is another thing. You called to ministry. You're called to position. You know, God calls you based upon the gifts he's putting in you. You don't call yourself. Uh, who has saved us, called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It's a doctrine statement right there. For which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. 
For this reason, I also suffer. He said, why? As a, as a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, he's going to suffer. He's going to go through stuff, right? These things. I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have what I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words. Again, the standard biblical canon of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Doctrine statement. Where is the Holy Spirit? As a believer, dwells in us. The treasure which has been entrusted to you. What is the treasure? Scripture. The reading of it, the teaching of it, the establishment of it, that is a treasure. All right? Um, pastoral responsibility. All right? So in other words, it's not about me. It's about Scripture. It's not about putting together an organization based on what I want to do. It's based upon the call. It's based upon God's timing, everything. All of this is, is in there. Chapter 2. Verse 1 to 3, and then I'm going to go to verse 15. He says, You therefore, my son, again, an affectionate term for someone that he has, has mentored. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, grace is the God-given ability to do something. So in other words, just because you don't feel like you're qualified to do it, or the grace of God is there to enable you and help you do it through the working of the Holy Spirit, right? Therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. These entrust to faithful men. Now remember, who are the faithful men? These elders, bishops, presbyters, deacons, all of this stuff over here. Uh, and the things which you have heard in me and in the presence of many witnesses, these entrusted faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So, you know, one gives to another, to another. Mentorship, right? This is why uh, uh, mentorship is so important. Uh, you, you, you always need to be mentored uh, because, you know, like Paul said, I haven't made it, I haven't attained it, but I keep pressing in to this. We need to be mentored. It says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. You know, he doesn't mince his words. He says, suffer hardship with me. You're, you're, you're going to go through it, but you're going to come out okay. Because God's grace is there. God's mercy is there. The Holy Spirit's there. Is enabled to, to do this. Things are set up. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna be able to, to do this. And then he goes on and he gives a, an example of a soldier and a, and a farmer of how they hang in there. But this is what the outcome is, verse 15. He says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly, who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Bam. 
So in other words, be diligent. How do you be diligent? You got to know it. You have to. You have to experience it. You have to be part of it. You have to study. You just can't wing it. You know. You have to. You have to study the Word of God. So be diligent to present yourself approved to God. So as a pastor, you're, we're answering to God. That's why there's, there's another scripture, you know, that says, you know, a teacher's doubly accountable. So don't be in such a hurry to be a, a, a teacher because you're going to be doubly accountable to God for what you teach. Okay? So uh, make sure you're doing that. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman. I like that term there. You know, a workman. You know, that's 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 the laborer. That's you put the time in. You know, you do the hard work. You do the hard, hard lifting. You know, I was I, I had a pastor friend of mine in here uh, Tuesday. I think it was. We were in here and then we were talking and we were talking about ministry and stuff. And we were talking about I was showing him uh, Logos, our Bible program. You know, I was just uh, showing him. I said, "This is really great." And then we were talking about how, uh, you know, I said when I first started doing this, I used to lay out two or three different Bible translations, and I'd have a dictionary, and I'd have a, I'd have a commentary, and I'd have something else, and I'd have my coffee and cookies over here, and the crumbs would be all over everything. But, but the whole point was, you know, you're looking over here, and you're doing this, and you're cross-referencing, and you're checking, and you're, and you're doing all this stuff. You know, that's that's the work of nuts and bolts of it. Now, you know, they have it on these computers, and I was telling them, I said, I've got sort of a thousand books on this one particular program. We're sitting down there, and I was showing them all of this stuff, but these are all tools that, you know, to be a workman, you know, to, to know. Uh, you know, you don't, you don't become something without working at it. So be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Why? Because you're <coughs> accurately handling the Word of God. If you can if you can accurately handle it, that also means you can unaccurately handle it. That's why you have to be a workman under God. Right? Because it's... Uh, uh, think about it. The Bible is 4,500 years of history, maybe? Different dispensations, different authors, different periods where God's revealing Himself in different ways. Uh, theology is changing. Uh, uh, knowledge of God is changing. Application, different things, the context, and then out of all of that, it's still contemporary for today. So you know, how do you derive to that? How do you get to that? And so He just tells them, you know. Uh, be a workman unto God, needing not to be ashamed, ashamed, but correctly handling the word of God. Uh, in the chapter 3, verse 1 to 7, he comes into the problem again. But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For some men will be lovers, will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, reviliers, Disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious, gossips, without self-control, brutal haters of God, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, 
rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, and avoid such men as these who will arise in the year 2020. Mm -hmm. no, I'm just kidding, the 2020. But I mean, is this stuff today? It's very contemporary. And 2,100 years ago, he says, this is what's going to happen. I mean, it's, this is just crazy. Uh, and here's the outcome of these, of these people. Verse 7, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. You know, always learning the wrong thing. Always going in the wrong direction. Uh, teaching the wrong thing. Whereas we have, from let there be light, what God is doing. Right? Just stay on those those pages. And then drop down to verse fifteen, chapter three, verse fifteen. That from childhood you have known the sacred writings. So since Timothy was a little boy, right, he's been around scripture, and which were able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. In other words, the scriptures are what led him and leads us to salvation, right? That's what he's saying here. Which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation, but this is how you do it, through faith which is in Jesus Christ, right? And then here's famous scripture. Scripture. All scripture is inspired by God. So in other words, all 66 books are inspired by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work. So in other words, while you're being a workman unto God, remember how you get there, being a workman unto God, it's through the canon, it's through the scriptures. It's understanding, it's, it's teaching, it's, it's bringing that forward. That's why I say on Sunday, the sermons for me, I just get to share it. You just hear the conversation God's having with me. And I, and I, I just get to share it. Um, so that it says, so, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So notice the context of that passage is to a pastor, and pastors, and leaders, and teachers, and and again, we should expect this of our teachers. You know, have you done your homework? You know, you you don't want someone to teach you that's just there because they they think they can teach the Bible. You know, we all probably have the ability to do it, but if you have the desire to do it, then you do the work to do it. And then you put that together with the call of God, and, and then it becomes a, a must-do. You must do this. Uh, that's where your joy is at. We'll close up with this, chapter 4, verse 1 to 5. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ, Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, doctrine statement, mm -hmm. and by his appearance and his kingdom. Again, famous passage. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So in other words, if you're going to tell somebody something, you're going to be instructing them, but have a biblical basis for what you're saying. 
You know, it's not the gospel according to Steve. There has to be a biblical basis to, to what we're teaching. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. There's a whole lot right there. But notice it says, you know, there's going to come a time where people are going to want to hear just what they want to hear. And if you tell them what they want to hear, they're going to follow you. And this is a problem in the church today. Because a lot of times people say, okay, you know, I, I don't want to pick out on anybody. But there's a big church down in Orange County that started by someone where there wasn't any church in the area. And he went and he asked people, if we put together a church, how would you like it to be? He didn't start here. He started with them. And he says, how would you like it to be? And they said, well, 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 this is what we want. This is what we don't want. We want this. We want it short. We don't want it that. We don't want it. And he goes, okay. He put together a church like that, and he built a big church. But is it biblical? Are the people learning from this? Or are they just feeling holy and sanctified? You know, uh, they won't want to have sound doctrine, turn away. Uh, verse 5, but you be sober in all things, endure hardship. And this is the one that grabbed me years ago, because I always thought, okay, an evangelist, there's going to be an evangelist that's going to come, and that person's going to go out, that person's going to do the door knocking, that person's going to do the inviting, that person is going to do all this. And then I read this, it says, you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist. That's on me. That's on me. That's on pastors. That's on leaders. Do that work. So in other words, not only do I teach it, I got to do it. Right? I have to set it up. I have to be part of that. And he says, fulfill your ministry. That is part of fulfilling ministry. And then the last thing here, I think, which is fitting, that we close with this part, because we've been talking about Paul for X amount of months now, right? Weeks. And this is Paul's closing remarks here. Chapter 2, no, chapter 4, 2 Timothy, verse 6 to 8. Paul says this. Now, remember, this is the year 68, 67, and Paul is probably martyred not long after this. He says, For I am ready, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only me, but also to all of you who have loved his appearing. Paul knows his time is short, and this is his closing remarks. He, he knows it, and he's saying that. Although he's still hoping in verse nine, he says that you know that you'll come to me and bring so and so. He closes it with a with a few personal little things, but he knows he's he's in his last days, and and he's he's ready. He's ready to uh, 
he's, he's, he's ready to go be with the Lord, but he's going to preach and teach to the very end. And so I think that fittingly kind of ends Acts, but it also ends Paul's ministry uh, and everything he's done. At this point, what we know about Paul could be conjecture based on outside information, but none of it is biblical. So, thoughts, questions on that? Was that cool or what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, uh, um, a lot of meat in Acts, so I, I hope that as you review Acts, as you're reading through Acts, and you remember, and you know, uh, oh, this was Paul's journeys, this was Paul was doing this, church was early, and this was being established, and this is why they said this, and this is why they had that, and they have these false teachers, and pastors are supposed to do that, and you've got deacons, you've got elders, you've got all these things, you know, going on, and, uh, you know, why did Jesus stand up when Stephen was being martyred, you know, and, and all those things like that. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a really, really compelling story in there. And then you add to that the epistles. You just lay the epistles right into that narrative. You know, because the epistles are now contemporary to what's in the, the book of Acts. So on January 6th, when we come back, we're going to start in Romans 1. Maybe take one chapter a week, however that goes. But there's just a lot of doctrine, a lot of... A lot of meat in Romans, just a, a, lot, a, lot, of, a lot of meat. Not that there isn't in the others, but it's just really hardcore Christianity. So, thoughts, questions? We're good. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we just thank you, Lord, for this. Oh, months of looking into Acts of the Apostles, Lord, and looking into Paul's letters and Peter's letters and James and the others, Lord, that... Uh, uh, what was said to the church and why it was said to the church and what it means, Lord, and how you are moving then, how you're moving now, uh, and what it means to us individually and corporately as a body of Christ. Lord, we just thank you for this time, Lord. We just thank you that by your Spirit you bring remembrance to us of the teachings and things that we need to remember, but also give us a desire to go back into those scriptures and reread and relive. Uh, those moments in time, Lord, that uh, you have for us that will renew us today and give us strength and encouragement. So, Father, we just thank you for it, and we give you praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. See you all on January 6th, 2021.